Hello and welcome to the Ask the Geographer podcast series from the Department of Education and Outdoor Learning at the Royal Geographical Society with IBG. I'm Harry. In each podcast, I'll meet geographers from around the world to ask them about topical events, timely publications and geographical research. Today we're joined by Professor Pauline Deutz, lead lecturer on the green economy and working beyond disciplines at the University of Hull, who has a special interest in the building and implications of a circular economy. And Dr. Charlotte Dean, also from the University of Hull, who specializes in utilizing participatory research methods and the co-creation of the citizen inquiry projects with young people. In today's podcast, we'll be discussing circular plastics. Thank you both for joining us today. Circular plastics is the topic of conversation for today, Pauline. Could you explain what this term means? Yes, indeed. Thank you. Circular is a reference to the circular economy, which means that products are designed to use resources in a way that's as efficient as can be in the use of materials and energy and minimises the production of waste. So this contrasts with what's called a linear economy or the take-make-dispose model, where resources are extracted, made into products, used and basically thrown away. So circular plastics has to fit in with the circular design, but that could mean many different things. In some cases, it might mean an object is designed to be long-lasting, or it might be designed with recovery in mind. It could also be made from renewable resources, as circular economy is also about being more sustainable generally, so avoiding the use of fossil fuels. Uh, For some uses of plastics, it might be very difficult to separate the packaging from the product. So maybe a compostable uh, or a biodegradable plastic might be the answer. So there are many different options and it's it's rather difficult to be specific about what a circular plastic might be. And are we seeing much movement away from the linear approach to circular plastics or is it still in its infancy, the idea and the research? I think there are a lot of things happening and certainly over the last few months, if you happen to be looking on boxes of tea bags, for example, you'll see that more of them are claiming to be biodegradable or compostable. It's a bit uncertain what that means. We do need a bit more clarity in terms of definitions and we need those sorts of initiatives to be matched by the services that local authorities are offering Otherwise, we'll have something that might be actually compostable, but you might not have a suitable service for that where you live, which is a lot of the problem with plastics because they're so variable and it might be technically possible to recover them, but not actually possible where you are. And there's a lot of pressure coming from all sorts of different directions on companies and local authorities to do something. But I don't think we've really decided yet what the best option is. And, and maybe that might be variable. So it's a very complicated system, which maybe we can't fix exactly without risking trying some different things. And, you know, it may take a bit longer to find out what really works. Charlotte, could you explain how your work with young people fits into what Pauline has just outlined about the complicated system of, of plastics? Yeah, certainly. Well, 
our brief within the School of Education at the University of Hull was to engage young people in the circular plastics economy. So the first thing we did is to ask some young people what the term circular plastics economy meant to them. And the answer was not a lot. So we spent some time talking about what the circular economy might mean and then breaking down that term into the different processes that can ensure that plastics are being kept in that circular loop rather than being released back into the environment as waste. So we felt that it was really important that young people understood this really well and we then involved the young people in adopting a really critical approach to researching how we could move towards a circular economy through carrying out their own citizen inquiries. The term uh, circular plastics and as you just mentioned a circular economy is very easy to to picture. I imagine that that was quite easy for students and young people to pick up. It is easy to picture in a visual manner, and that is something that we used. We used um, diagrams, we used pictures, we used a lot of visual material. But the young people actually found the best way to understand the circular um, plastics economy was to break it down into the four kind of cycles. They picked out the areas that were most interesting to them were the reuse, uh, the recycling, the reducing and the repurposing of plastic. So they focused on those specific kind of practical tasks that they could really get the teeth into. And was that a part of citizen inquiry? Yeah, it was. Yeah, yeah. So the young people all carried out citizen inquiries. And um, what citizen inquiry is, is it's a research methodology, essentially, and it's, it's derived from citizen science. So citizen science is essentially the active engagement of the public in research activities, whereby the focus really shifts from the researcher to the members of the public, who then become active agents in defining that research agenda. So they become in charge of that research rather than it being researcher led. So it's a really, really good methodology to use with young people. In my work particularly, my background is as a youth worker and working with young people, it's really important to me that that power goes to the young people. So it's the young people who are the researchers and I see myself very much as the facilitator in that process. And of course, I know a lot about different forms of research and, you know, a lot about plastics and, and the environment. So I do present advice and I usually present information in a fun and engaging way about well in this project it was plastics but ultimately it's the young people who decide which area they want to research they design the questions and then they carry out the research using whichever methods they feel suits their topic best so I've worked so far with in this project with over 200 young people and examples of their inquiries have been to produce an open source survey mechanism using Enquire which is an open university uh, mechanism, which I think people may have heard of and seen through. Um, it was used really, really successfully through the BBC Garden Watch and Nature Watch Citizen Science, Citizen Inquiry. Young people have also produced a public participation survey. They carried out some classification of plastics activities in our local shopping centre because they wanted to find out what people knew about the different classifications of plastics. 
um, of which there are seven, and I won't bang on about that now because we'll be here for hours. Um, they designed an app. I mean, really excitingly, they've actually designed an app for children, um, for younger children, to educate them about the importance of reusing, recycling, reducing and repurposing. And then an animation with um, a wrap about the four hours. And again, this is going to be distributed across schools and hopefully on the RGS website as a complete teaching and learning resource. So it'll have lesson plans, PowerPoints for teachers, and it's all fully researched, designed and created by young people. That sounds really great. Can I ask, why is citizen science more prolific nowadays? It's more well known than in the past. What has allowed it to grow? Well, I think the main reason is probably due to the development of digital technology and social media. So citizen science previously relied on a relatively small group of volunteers and they were usually white middle-class educated males, no surprise there. So now we're really starting to flip that demographic on its head by encouraging women, girls, young people, and just generally people whose voices are often less likely to be heard. So the research now can be genuinely focused on the issues and the areas which are are genuinely concerning the citizens of our society. So I think the best thing about this whole process and the best thing about it being more accessible is that it's it's empowering. So people are not only learning about the problems they are facing in their communities or in society, but they're also having a real opportunity to de- devise solutions to these problems. Pauline, um, I noticed a lot of high-profile people engaging with this area of work um, or with waste in general, such as Dame Ellen MacArthur. Has your initiative gained much traction in and around Hull? Well, we've been very fortunate with this project to have support from Hull City Council, the East Riding of Yorkshire, along with a number of companies and other organisations, both based in the region and beyond. And I, I should mention our funder, the Engineering and Physical Sciences Research Council, to whom we're obviously immensely grateful, uh, because that's helped to give the project sort of a higher profile and give us the resources with which to carry things out. So these organisations have supported us, uh, to start off with, by participating in workshops and interviews that we've done to understand, well, as uh, Charlotte was doing with the young people, what the circular economy means to them, how they use plastics and what they think the challenges might be. And we find from that that there are various different ideas, as we might expect, and each organisation tends to focus on the elements that are relevant to them. Interestingly, with the public seen as both a source of pressure to be more sustainable with plastics, but at the same time as being slightly resistant to new products, particularly more expensive ones. So we have to kind of find a way of breaking down the barriers between different organisations and their focuses and how to uh, work with the public who we can't necessarily assume might be prepared to pay more for their products or have the choice of paying more for their products. Now, some organisations have have gone the extra mile, as it were, and one supermarket in particular has been working with colleagues in logistics who've been helping to redesign how they use plastics, not just in the region, but across their supply chain uh, through the country. We've been working in particular with the local authority, which I think I can mention, Scarborough Borough Council, who've been very helpful, 
we've been examining with them how they might change the way they collect recyclable materials from residents who don't have space for a wheeled bin. Uh, so they've been using plastic bags to collect recyclable materials where those plastic bags themselves end up getting incinerated. So we've got a bit of a, a dilemma there. So we did an investigation on, into alternatives that might be reusable, for example. But again, they do tend to cost more. So I thought I'd seem to be identifying more problems than solutions. But unfortunately, I feel that's not unrealistic. But we have had a lot of take uh, interest more, I would say, from organisations than the public. I mean, Charlotte's work is perhaps the most direct way in which we've been approaching the public. Um, only 14% of global plastic packaging is recycled. It's a silly question, but where does the rest of it go? Well, it's not a silly question. Uh, it's not all going into the ocean, I have to say straight away. So some plastic packaging cannot be recycled. You know, we all have seen those labels on products, not recycled, not recycled locally, might be recyclable, but we don't know where you live kind of thing. And the UK government is trying to crack down on that situation so that if something says it's recyclable, then it has to be recyclable everywhere in the UK. But of course, there's some sort of steps to go to achieve that. Uh, now, in the UK, the non-recyclable plastics or plastics that have somehow accidentally found their way into the wrong bin, which is always an issue, may be sent to landfill which is kind of a waste of material. We're burying the materials and energy that have gone into making the packaging. But nonetheless, that shouldn't be causing great harm to the environment beyond the landfill itself. Some plastic packaging is incinerated to capture energy, which is better than landfilling it and might be the best thing that can be done with that particular type of packaging, but does release CO2 to the atmosphere. So the, the kind of plastics pollution, the marine plastics, come from material that's not been properly disposed of or has somehow escaped in transit on its way to where it should have gone. Or we see in the news that a certain amount of plastics that have been collected in this country end up being sent abroad where it may not be treated for whatever reason with quite the level of environmental protection that we are assuming would be the case or might be the case in this country, which after all is a relatively prosperous developed country. So we have these collection systems and disposal systems in place, at least in principle. Globally, a key issue is the lack of fully operational waste collection and disposal services still in many parts of the world, where rubbish may literally be left on the streets. Now, we have a recently graduated PhD student in Bali Piwa from South Africa who is looking at the problem of recycling or the lack of it in South African townships. So in many ways, the waste issue is kind of a symptom of development and poverty rather than a specifically waste matter. So there are certainly kind of waste aspects that we need to deal with, but really finding solutions to that problem will involve solving much larger problems, shall we say, about, around development. So a very, very picture across the world. Um, I, I saw one prediction that by 2050, there might be more plastic than fish in the sea, which might be a bit uh, dramatic and an exaggeration, but it was shocking. 
it is shocking. I don't know what it means. Is it the number of pieces of microplastics compared to the number of the fish? Although I'm not sure what that means. But one of the problems with plastics is its durability, which is, of course, why we love it in some senses. But it's very slow to break down. So it becomes a physical hazard. And we've seen the pictures of turtles and fish getting trapped in plastic, which, of course, is horrendous. It does or break down, but doesn't sort of dissolve. And I'm not sure that even dissolving would be a great solution because things in the sea would be drinking plastic. But uh, it breaks down into very tiny solid particles, these microplastics. So it is being consumed. And I don't think we know what the long-term effects of that are, but it, it certainly doesn't seem like a great situation. And of course, hence all the current concern and sort of efforts to try to improve the the use of plastics. I saw something earlier in the year uh, and read an article about a plastic eating form of bacteria. Did you see that as well? I have seen that and it sounds great. I mean, also slightly scary. I can see a sort of science fiction angle on that that might be highly entertaining in a scary sort of science fiction way. Um, But that, in a way, that's what's happening to biodegradable food in landfill or in anaerobic digesters. We are relying on bacteria, microorganisms to break down our waste. And that is what happens to organic material in nature. Uh, If we can design and sort of constrain microorganisms to do that for plastics, it might be a wonderful solution. I think there's a little way to go to making that work on a large scale. It does sound tantalising, but maybe not imminent or realistic. Yeah, if you look back over the history of human responses to environmental challenges, it's always tempting to find a technological solution like that. So we can basically keep going with our profligate lifestyles, but rely on technology, which might be energy efficient light bulbs, or it might be well, plastic eating bacteria, whatever it is, so that we don't need to make too much adjustment ourselves, but can feel less guilty about our impact on the environment because a solution has been found somewhere. That's not necessarily on a sort of longer timescale. We might want to think about changing our lifestyles a little more rather than relying on these technological solutions, which don't necessarily have quite the effect that they're intended to. For example, that might just make people feel happier about using more plastics, which are, after all, predominantly made of fossil fuels. So maybe avoiding plastics might be a longer term solution. That leads me into my next question. Is the problem that we are creating more plastic at the moment or do we have a consistent amount that we churn out or do we throw away more or has has our behaviour changed regarding waste? Possibly all of the above. So I think the usage of plastic is still increasing globally, uh, despite the sort of concern. But that high level of concern maybe only goes back a couple of years. I, you know, or, or the peak it is now, let's say. So it will take a while for that to feed into systems. Of course, right at the moment, we're probably using more plastic than ever in response to COVID-19 with you know, plastic gloves and personal protective equipment of all kind, notably including disposable face masks, which might be partly made out of paper, but uh, do contain sort of elements of plastics as well. So obviously you'd need to adjust to the, the present situation. Top priority is health and safety. 
Uh, hopefully, though, we have got systems in place that can at least collect and dispose of all this extra plastic safely. Charlotte, returning to citizen inquiry, earlier you mentioned Inquire, your public participation survey, the app and rap music. What challenges are posed by greater involvement of the public in your work? I would say that the the main challenges are that the, the more the public are involved in research activities, the more challenges emerge around questions around the validity of the evidence generated by the public. There are difficulties in standardising the methods of analysing that evidence that the public are creating. And also, I would say that there are challenges associated with or related to identifying suitable participants to join and carry out the research. However, I feel that the more we do involve the public in citizen inquiry, the more these challenges can be overcome. I'm really interested personally in how we can involve young people in research. And it's so important that it's not just as a tokenistic gesture whereby the researcher kind of gathers some information and then scurries away with the data and the information that's been collected and then decides what to do with it. So it's really, really important to me that citizen inquiry has to be led by those citizens carrying out the inquiry. So in my case, this would be young people. They have to own the inquiry. So they decide what methods to use. They decide what the evidence they have collected means. So they're involved in the analysis. And then they should really be involved in the writing up and the dissemination of those findings. So I think although there are challenges that are posed by greater involvement of the public, it's it's our duty as researchers and people working with these young people to try and overcome those challenges as much as possible. Fundamentally, in the living world, there is no waste, that materials just flow. Is that correct? And if so, what you advocate is a return to natural cyclical reuse. The natural world is part of the inspiration here for the circular economy. And a lot of those ideas come from an earlier idea of industrial ecology, which was precisely you know, that industry should be organised similarly to natural ecosystems. So you know, the waste product of one animal or the animal itself becomes the food of the next organism in the chain as it were i'm not sure it's entirely true that there's no waste in nature though it depends what sort of time scale you're looking at so the oceans are kind of storage on a very large scale for sediments some of which are microorganisms that have died and sunk to the bottom and of course it's also storage for water and carbon likewise you know forests are storage for carbon dioxide let me just mention that unfortunately now the oceans are effectively serving as storage for plastics, which is an unintended uh, consequence sort of these human-made materials are being caught up in natural cycles, as it were, being washed down rivers and into the oceans, and then they they can't get out. So circular economy is in some way inspired by this idea of cycles, of taking something that served one purpose and maybe putting it back into something else. And it's fine to take that inspiration from nature, but in society, it's it's very difficult to set up systems. I mean, there is no sort of 
global body that can look at how we organize things and arrange the best way of, of doing it. There's always political and economic issues to consider. Humans, unlike you know, animals in a different type of ecosystem, are capable of understanding things and setting out to make changes and make decisions, but not always with a very good level of information, for example, uh, we try to change things and it may have unintended consequences. There's always room for debate into how we should be doing things. Where, you know, seldom will everyone agree on what the most sustainable recycling system might be. And of course, who pays for this sort of nature-based system that we might like to set up? So I think it's fine to take some inspiration from nature, which is what's happened. But a lot of challenges in actually making that work. Can plastics be designed to be used over and over again? Okay, so let me first iterate, stress I'm not a scientist, so I'm very much a social scientist, so in terms of the the kind of technical aspect of this, um, please bear that in mind, but I think the answer is is that, yes, plastics can be designed to be used over and over again, they can be, and, and they often are, so I, th- I think the fault in, in the cycle is usually an economic and behavioural one rather than one that is created in the design processes. So we need to move away from, Pauline mentioned earlier, the, the linear model of, of the kind of take, make and dispose model. We need to move away from this and really fundamentally rethink the way we design, use and reuse plastics. So it's a it's a real systemic behavior and attitude shift that's needed in tackling the root causes towards moving towards a transition towards a, a circular economy for plastic in which it never becomes a waste or pollution so you mentioned earlier harry that um 14 i think it was about 14 percent. there's only 14 percent of plastic packaging that is actually collected for recycling So it's critical that we need to make sure that recycling is a viable economic alternative to just disposing of plastics and making more and more new versions of the same product. So all plastics should be designed to fit within a system, whether it's a reuse, recycling or composting. Pauline talks about, you know, composting plastics. So that's something that should be brought into the system. So ultimately, is it accurate to say that the goal is to design products uh, that are eventually returned to manufacturers for dismantling and reuse? Yeah, I think, yeah, the simple answer is is yes. So we, we can all work together to help remove some of the plastic waste that's already in our environment, such as, um, I mean, a lot of young people especially are involved in this by doing litter picks um, and beach cleans. But even if we manage to clean up all of the plastic in our environment today, for instance, more plastics would have leaked into it by tomorrow. So it's kind of it's not solving the problem. Even replacing plastic with another material such as glass, metal or paper is sometimes used. That's not always the answer either, because these materials themselves can also lead to negative environmental consequences such as through increased carbon emissions. They often use a lot of water in the production and um, and create food waste in cases of food d- deteriorating because it's not it's not wrapped and preserved properly. So to answer your question, the answer is is yes, the goal is to design products which are eventually returned to the manufacturers for dismantling and reuse. 
But to do this, we would need to fundamentally redesign the entire plastics production system in which there is no plastic waste or, or pollution. But this is only ever going to happen if that system causes no loss in economic value, because that, that seems to be the, the main driving force at the moment. Pauline, is this what you would call loop closing? Yes, loop closing is about keeping material in circulation. Uh, the name is a reference to ecosystems where nutrients and energy kind of move around the food chain. So closed loop manufacturing is taking end of life products back to return into a new version of the same product. But loop closing doesn't have to be quite that closed, shall we say. It could include recovery for use in a completely different purpose. It might be local loop closing or indeed it might involve transporting materials on a much larger scale. How does the UK fare when compared internationally um, or to European neighbours in loop closing and in uh, circular plastics? Well, we've caught up a lot since, say, the 1990s. We were one of the slower countries to get started on recycling. And indeed, the efforts that went into improving our recycling system from the sort of 1990s onwards were partly inspired by the fact that our European neighbours were doing much better, much higher recycling rates than us. And we still have a higher dependence on landfill, which is partly a sort of geological legacy because of the, the, you know, the nature of our country. There were a lot of holes in the ground from which materials, sand, gravel and so forth were taken, many of which have been partially filled by waste. So there's kind of a reasons why we were a little bit behind on recycling. Uh, we have caught up a lot more since then. Local authorities in the UK are crucial for reducing dependency on landfill. What technical changes have allowed the reduction in that dependency from 79% to 43% from the year 2000 to 2010? Well, there were technological changes in the way waste was collected, not necessarily in terms of high-tech solutions, but in sort of changing practices. So curbside collecting of recyclable materials gets much higher participation than relying on people going to bottle banks or whatever it might be. The introduction to the wheeled bin, in fact, made quite a big difference in making waste collections more efficient. But partly this was a case of implementing technology that already existed. So I mentioned we were a bit behind our European neighbours. They seem to be less resistant to the idea of waste incineration in other countries, which was partly how they reduced their dependence on landfill. So we have increased our use of incineration over this time. But I think it was more about organisation and public participation in recycling than necessarily about large-scale technological changes. Can I ask, what does ontological mean? And how have ontological adjustments uh, also helped our understanding of waste? Ontological is a philosophical expression. It's all about the nature of existence. So it's a term that researchers sort of borrow from philosophy and refers to the, the worldview of the scientist of a, a research project. And we could, as in this case, apply that term also to society's views more generally. So you're 
of ontology determines your view of what is relevant and how things relate to each other. So prior to the 1990s, there was very much an an out-of-sight, out-of-mind attitude to waste. If something was no longer useful, desirable or functional, it simply needs to be got rid of. And what happened afterwards or what might have been done instead were not really relevant questions that many people were asking. If you managed to put something in a bin rather than littering, then that was being a responsible citizen. But uh, since this time, things like you know, anthropogenic climate change has become more of a mainstream idea. And we've made much more of a connection between small scale individual actions and their larger scale implications. And so you know, views about waste have changed part of those wider changes in attitude. And now we more see waste as being a a lost resource. We've got much more understanding about the materials and energy that's embedded in it. So there are drivers from all kinds of organisations, including the government, to do better with our recycling. And there's vastly more sort of engagement from individuals that this is something that we need to do and in fact of course it's something relatively easy to do so if I tell people I'm working on recycling waste you know everyone will respond with their story about real bins and so forth this is this is something that has now become part of our lives and that's a huge change in the way we look at and understand waste. I'm feeling more hopeful after that answer Um, finally what did your findings reveal specifically for waste in Yorkshire and the Humberside? Well, there are lessons for the region. I think it's important to keep in mind that places are different, so the same solutions might not work everywhere. I will say right now, I don't necessarily know what those solutions will look like. Uh, But just to mention, even on the scale of Yorkshire and Humberside, Hull is a very densely populated urban area, and the east riding, the authority just around Hull, is relatively rural, with on average a more prosperous population. So even on this rather small scale, we may need to be looking at different options that work for different people. But we have to note that all the shops and companies and so forth here are part of larger scale organisations and international supply chains. So the, the huge challenge is to bring together those differently local needs fitting into business driven networks. And that is a challenge that we're, we're working at. And as I say, i I have to say, I don't know precisely what the answer is. Thank you both for joining us today and good luck for the rest of the Circular Plastics project. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, please subscribe to the Ask the Geographer podcast series on iTunes and SoundCloud.com. Be inspired and stay informed with the Society's wide range of resources, many of which are free. School membership unlocks access to other excellent resources, including online lectures and many other tailor-made benefits for teachers and students. Access our resources at www.rgs.org schools.